Hello, people. You are listening to The Dirt. This is a program about the environment, about justice, and about, most of all, people. Uh, I want to start off today with a huge thank you to WNCU-FM. We will be broadcasting in 2019 out of Durham, North Carolina, from our new home here on 90.7 FM. A fond farewell to WSHA 88.9 FM in Raleigh once again, and welcome to listeners of our program who were with us in Raleigh and on the podcast and have been with us since we began this thing back in 2017. Thank you for sticking with us and joining us here in Durham. Uh, And I want to give a huge, huge, huge welcome to all of the new people who are listening to the program for the first time and to WNCU for uh, having us here. They have a fantastic slate of news and storytelling programs and great music. And I hope that uh, we will be every bit as interesting and informative as the content that you are used to getting at WNCU. And on that note, we have a wonderful show lined up for you today. So we're going to try to squeeze a lot in and uh, need to get right to it. We will be sitting down with William J. Barber III uh, later on in the show to talk about the Climate Reality Project and the North Carolina Poor People's Campaign the uh, Environmental Justice Advisory Board that he is a part of here in North Carolina. Uh, Lots of stuff to talk about with him. And we'll also be sitting down with a newly elected state senator, Vicki Sawyer, newly elected, though she was appointed back in August. She's representing the good people of Iredell and Yadkin counties and uh, spoke out recently in a public meeting about coal ash disposal and has been advocating that we get to the bottom of what is causing a, a long-time thyroid cancer cluster in Iredell County. So we will talk to her about that. First, with me in the studio today, I am honored to have esteemed environmental journalist from North Carolina Policy Watch, Lisa Sorg. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Brian. Thanks for having me today. Welcome back to the show and to the show for the first time on WNCU. I think Coal ash, uh, as I mentioned, is probably the story of the day. So I want to talk about that. We're um, in the middle of another process uh, wherein the state is looking for kind of public input as they are making a decision about what to do with some Duke Energy coal ash storage sites. This is a this is a saga that has been going on for years and years and years. At this point, there have been. I don't know how many opportunities for the public to weigh in in various different ways about what they want to do with coal ash. And now there are some some new kind of meetings. When I first heard about these things that were happening, I I thought that they were going to be kind of public hearings in a sense where, you know, somebody would get up if you had a a member of the public and, and say, hey, this is I got two minutes to talk about what I want to see happen with the coal ash. Here it is speaking to the decision makers at, at the Department of Environmental Quality, yada, yada. But that's not what's happening at these meetings, apparently. What is the Department of Environmental Quality doing? You were at one of these meetings, a couple of these meetings. I went to the one in Cheryl's Ford, which is uh, was regarding the Marshall Steam Plant on Lake Norman. And it was packed. In fact, they were turning people away. The capacity of the gymnasium was 452, and it was two capacity. Wow. But... That's what everybody thought, that they were going to get their two minutes or that there would be some public presentation of what the plan was and then that the people would have a chance to speak. But what 
the original format was is what I call the science fair format, where there were booths around the gymnasium where you could go ask questions and that you were just supposed to go and talk to these people one-on-one. Well, A, that doesn't allow people to learn from one another in speaking out to their uh, directly to the public officials. It also, I mean, you have 500 people that are going to swarm these tables. It's just logistically impossible. And people were very upset and, in fact, so upset that they ended up, DEQ ended up having a Q&A session, which sort of assuaged the, uh, the public, but it still was not optimal. What was the uh, temperature in the room in terms of what to do with, with the coal ash? Every single person who, when they took a public poll, wanted the coal ash excavated out of the impoundments that are unlined. The The plan is either to excavate everything and put it in a, in a lined landfill, either on-site or off-site. Another option is to cap, what they call cap in place, which puts a cap over it to try to prevent rainwater from eroding and infiltrating the coal ash, but there's no liner in the bottom. So you have the potential for groundwater contamination, which we know already is happening beneath these impoundments. And then there was a hybrid of the two, but the consensus was, we want this stuff dug up. And from what I understand, the the quote-unquote hybrid option uh, is actually just capping in place, but you're kind of shuffling or packing some coal ash in a certain way that uh, Duke Energy claims would be somehow safer, although it doesn't seem to solve the problem of groundwater contamination. And uh, just for a little bit of context, first of all, coal ash, uh, if people are unfamiliar with the subject matter, it is a coal combustion byproduct. It contains lead, uh, mercury, hexavalent chromium, lots of bad stuff, stuff that's linked to all kinds of adverse health effects, cancer, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And often, more often than not, the coal ash is stored in kind of ponds next to major uh, waterways, often major drinking water sources uh, like the Noose River, Cape Fear, Lake Norman. So it seems like common sense that you wouldn't keep the stuff there in the first place. By Duke's own admission in court filings, every single one of their coal ash uh, storage sites is leaking and contaminating groundwater. Every single one. That is out of Duke's mouth. So it seems uh, like common sense that you would move this stuff into a lined landfill. Uh, even that isn't safe, but it's the safest option we have. I mean, we should just, we shouldn't be burning coal. I mean, that's the, the bottom line. But so, you know, we're, we're in this process again. There are two more meetings, I believe. There's one tonight in Roxborough. Uh, and there will be another meeting on, uh, sorry, tonight, uh, the, by the time this airs, it will have been in the past. There, The next meeting, which will be in the future, is going to be uh, on Tuesday, I can't remember the date off the top of my head, in Belmont, right outside of Charlotte. I expect that will be very largely attended. What do you expect out of that? I think it's going to be as crazy as the, the one uh, in Cheryl's Ford, because Belmont, uh, there are a lot of people who have been on bottled water. Near Belmont, there are some very strong activist groups uh, regarding the Belmont uh, community and the Allen plant. So I expect it will be intense. There's a great piece out today um, by Elizabeth Utes of Energy News uh, Network, and she's basically 
she's she's recapped. I mean, you know, you have some pieces like this. There there have been a few that have been written that recaps the whole kind of saga from the don't drink letters and the Dan River spill all the way to where we are today. But she she touches on a couple of things and she touches on one of the comments that was made or several of the comments that were made at one of these events. But, you know, one of them was by a, a Walnut Cove minister. His name was Reverend Gregory Harrison. And he said, this is our prayer. Do what's right. And doing what's right is removing the contaminants in the ground. And I appreciate that quote in particular because it's a reminder that this is not just, you know, people bashing Duke Energy. It's not just about even just making water clean. It is a moral issue. It is about removing, you know, these life and death toxic contaminants out of exposure to people, to families, to children, to communities. And, you know, that's something that I think, you know, William Barber III and, and Climate Reality Project is working on in different contexts. And a lot of people in the environmental justice movement are talking about in different contexts. But I'm not totally sure that everybody sees it that way and really truly gets it. Certainly Duke Energy does not see it that way and does not truly get it. And I have to say, I'm a little bit concerned that the Department of Environmental Quality is lending too much credibility to in deference to Duke Energy and in what you know they want here. It isn't entirely clear to me, you know, from from what I'm reading in in Elizabeth Uz's piece and in, in some of your pieces and in some of the other recaps from the event the other day, they're presenting these options in kind of the best light available and it seems like it could have been written by Duke Energy in some sense. Do you do you think that the Cooper administration is doing enough on this issue, the Department of Environmental Quality in particular, um, on on coal ash? I mean, Frank Holloman, attorney for the Southern Environmental Law Center, was quoted as saying, Governor Cooper's DEQ to date has not cleaned up any coal ash pollution. He knows that there's still time, but it's it's a point that this was something that, that, that the governor made a big point of highlighting during the campaign. And the Department of Environmental Quality is still acting as though the public hasn't weighed in over and over and over and over and over again on this issue. I think people are pretty frustrated. In fact, um, Holloman said in Elizabeth Uth's piece, DEQ has been told this over and over again. They have to be in a coma not to know the public wants this ash removed to safe, dry, lined storage. I think that I have yet to meet a single person in any of my reporting that has said, yeah, yeah, let's leave it. And, you know, part of this is also on the legislature because the Coal Ash Management Act really and its amendments really they like to say, well, this is a very stringent law, but it's not, you know. And, and if this um, cleanup plan to either the hybrid or the uh, cap in place, they, they would have another basic 10 years. And, you know, the Lake Norman community is all on wells. So to answer your question, no, I don't think that we have been nearly strong enough, uh, the Cooper administration, about coal ash. I think you know, we have this climate change initiative that he's unveiled, but there are certain contradictions 
between the actions and the words. I mean, we ha- we oppose offshore drilling, but we're not really tackling coal ash. We, you know, want more renewable energy, but we're really not standing up to the pipeline. So I think certain actions are politically more palatable and easier. Yeah, I this this is interesting because it, for those who are not familiar, the governor signed recently an executive order, Executive Order 80, which pledged to uh, reduce the state's carbon footprint by, I think, 40-some percent by 2025. And, and so now agencies are tasked with coming up with, you know, how are you all going to do this? And it's a lot of agencies who are not even, uh, you know, they're not environmentally minded necessarily, but they're looking at, I mean, everything, tiny little things you can do just on a day-to-day basis to save energy and do all this other stuff, reduce your carbon footprint. And yet, there's the Atlantic Coast Pipeline carrying a fossil fuel being built and the permits being approved across the state. There is what, what's happening with Inviva right now. They were just another, you know, Inviva is a wood pellet manufacturer and wood pellets are what's known as biomass power. It's basically burning wood for fuel. And people like to say it's renewable, quote unquote, because trees grow back faster than coal forms. But it, I mean, the, the assertion is completely ridiculous. People say it's carbon neutral. It is not. Uh, it is just something that we're clear cutting a bunch of forests in the southeast, turning them into wood pellets and shipping those off to the UK to be burned as fuel there. And it's a dirty process. It's, it is not a carbon neutral process. And yet we have a new permit. In Hamlet, there, there was a, an air quality permit that DEQ granted that basically uh, allows them to change their manufacturing process, the mix of hardwoods and softwoods, things about that would keep them under a certain pollutant load. But the point is, even with more restrictions, quote unquote restrictions, on this these air emissions, it it still contributes to climate change because we're burning trees for fuel, which emit carbon dioxide at per energy more energy unit more than coal and we're cutting down trees which are carbon sinks and we're harming wetlands in the flood zones i mean that protect us against flood intrusion so it's just a bad idea all the way around and yet we're doing it i i just i don't understand I, and i think you know look there's a lot of time for the Cooper administration and the Department of Environmental Quality in particular to come around with some actually, you know, strong policies that get put in action. But we're pretty deep into this administration at this point. And he made some of these issues a big deal in his campaign. Uh, rhetorically, he has made climate change and fighting climate change a big deal. It takes it takes bold steps. And I think he is, I think he's probably vulnerable to a lot of criticism when you've, you've made this executive order, you've got uh, who knows how many months for people to come up with these plans. And in the meantime, you're doing some of this other stuff. I don't know. It's uh, it raises a lot of questions in my mind, at least about what priorities really are and, um, and who's influencing who, but you mentioned the North Carolina General Assembly. We don't have a whole lot of time left, but they have been sworn in. They come into session uh, to really do business this upcoming week. What do you expect from them in this regular long session? I think it'll be really interesting to see what the budget priorities are. And 
I'm wondering what kind of environmental bills that may have been put to bed or put kind of on ice in previous uh, sessions that could be revived, either good or bad. I know what I would like to see is some additional funding for DEQ. I know DEQ uses a funding shortage as, as a justification for some of the things they can't do. And it is true, they don't have enough money. But I think that having some courage, some political courage, would go a long way into just doing, following their mission. I agree. And on that point, you know, the legislature denied the Department of Environmental Quality the proper equipment they needed to test for perfluorinated compounds in our rivers and waterways last year in 2018. And, you know, you could argue that as a result of that, because of the government shutdown, uh, we can't test the samples that are being taken in North Carolina because we require, we, we rely on the federal government to do that testing for us since we don't have our own means to do it here. So, the budget is important. DEQ funding is important. This is public health. Uh, this is people's lives and livelihoods at stake. The legislature really needs to do the right thing when it comes to that. And I agree, the budget is going to be the thing to watch uh, this session for sure because of the way that the political dynamic is laid out. Cooper has a veto again. I can very easily imagine a lot of things getting snuck into or negotiated into the budget, would be, which would be a, uh, a difficult thing for the governor to veto. Um, So on that note, uh, we have got to head to a break. Uh, Stay tuned for our next segment. We'll be uh, sitting down with William J. Barber III to talk about climate justice. You are listening to The Dirt on WNCU-FM. Check out more information on WNCU.org and follow us on Twitter at The Dirt FM. We are back. You're listening to The Dirt. Thanks again to Lisa Sorg for sitting and talking with us uh, in the first segment. Uh, I want to turn now to William J. Barber III. He is involved with the Climate Reality Project, uh, which is a national, actually international, nonprofit fighting for climate change solutions. He is a member of the recently, fairly recently formed Environmental Justice and Equity Advisory Board at the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality. He is involved with the new Poor People's Campaign, uh, helping to train a new generation of leaders on justice issues like climate change and others. And he was gracious enough to sit down and talk with us a little bit about where he's been and where he's going and, and what the fight against climate change looks like. And I should also say he's in North Carolina Central alum. So that's a bonus. Uh, here's that conversation. Sitting here with uh, William Barber III. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Good morning, my friend. Thank you for having me on. It is our pleasure. Uh, first of all, you recently, well, somewhat recently, graduated from uh, the University of North Carolina School of Law. Uh, right. I also also attended that school, and I have to ask if you had Professor Hornstein for anything. I know uh, I did not have Professor Hornstein, but his legacy is no less diminished. So <laughs> I heard many things about him. Yeah, he's great. I don't think he's I don't think he's taught environmental law at, at the law school for a couple of years, but right. uh, he's he's fantastic. For anybody listening who uh, is doing any undergrad at Carolina or at Duke's uh, Nicholas School of the Environment, I think he teaches some environmental law classes there, and he's he's fantastic. Yeah. And you also 
attended North Carolina Central University North here. North Carolina Central, equal pride, absolutely. Um, proud HBCU grad. And to circle back a little bit to my uh, UNC Law days, wanted to shout out the C3 Center. I wanted to shout out uh, Professor Jonas Monis, um, who I took uh, both energy law and an independent study with, and also Professor uh, Savasta Kennedy, uh, who has just really been a mentor and a colleague. So, oh, yeah, Professor yeah. Kennedy was yeah. uh, around in my days, too. She's fantastic. So. You you focused on environmental subjects at Central as well. What that's right. What motivated you to move into this space? Yeah, so at North Carolina Central, um, I actually uh, my background earned my degree in environmental physics. Um, so I had planned originally to go into renewable energy engineering. Um, had a change of heart, of course. You know, I ended up at law school. But what led me. Uh, to that uh, career path was I, I just happened to always be, you know, pretty good at math and, um, you know, wanted to help people. So figuring why I wouldn't combine the two and just, you know, try to figure out something you could save the planet and use those skills at the same time. Yeah, they, uh, the math part of that is uh, <laughs> I do not possess that skill set. At once upon a time, I wanted to be an architect when I was young, and then I learned how much math was involved, and yeah. I was done with that. So. You get used to it after a while. <laughs> Uh, you are now at the Climate Reality Project. That's right. Uh, it is a nonprofit founded by Al Gore, um, among others. And tell me a little bit about what you're what you're doing there. Uh, I know that there's a, a partnership ongoing with the Poor People's Campaign in North Carolina. I'd like to hear about that too. Absolutely. And just to talk a little bit about the Climate Reality Project first is, um, so as you were saying, it's a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., founded by former Vice President Gore. Um, the Climate Reality Project, the mission is to catalyze a global uh, movement, really, on the climate crisis. Uh, the way we do that is the um, development of our climate trainings, uh, our climate reali reality leadership core trainings. I've been um, getting the emails yeah, inviting me to apply. Right. Hope you come and hope to see you in March. <laughs> um, so we've trained over 17,000 people um, on the climate crisis. Uh, we represent 80 chapters domestically and 10 international branches. Um, and yeah, just excited to be doing the work there. Uh, came on board in August as the Strategic Partnerships Associate and have been really, really, really doing heavy work on our upcoming Atlanta climate training uh, happening this coming March 14th through the 16th. Um, it's exciting, you know, for a number of reasons. You mentioned the partnership with the New Poor People's Campaign. Um, that's personally exciting. You know, of course, my father, Bishop uh, Barber, uh, and Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris uh, co-chair that campaign. Uh, the campaign itself, you know, consists of the four issues of poverty and inequality, systemic racism, militarism and the war economy and then ecological devastation. Um, the ecological devastation, you know, with my background in environment and energy has been my mainstay. Um, so the partnership we're working on with climate reality has really been exciting. Yeah. I, uh, and for people who are interested, by the way, climaterealityproject.org, you can find out more information about everything that y'all are doing over there. It's uh, it's fantastic, great work. Mm -hmm. It's the 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 intersection between um, social justice and the environmental movement is uh, interesting right. to me. I think for a long time uh, that intersection was ignored by a lot of powerful white-led environmental groups in the That's country, right. and uh, right. there's maybe now beginning to be an awakening. And it sounds like young people mm -hmm. uh, might be one of the big drivers 
of this. Can you tell me more about uh, about uh, that intersection, about the importance of young people in this movement? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned this disconnect, and, and it's been a historic disconnect, not only between, you know, the, the climate advocacy movement and, and the social justice movement, but also between climate advocacy and, and the movement around environmental justice itself. You know, many times, um, you know, there's been this false narrative that somehow those two engagements are distinct or separate from one another, which is absolutely not the case. You know, when you talk about uh, climate change, you look at the expansion of infrastructure, uh, you look at the placement of detrimental environmental uh, pollutants, um, you look at many of the environmental uh, 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 degradation factors um, that contribute to climate change. When you look at the placement of them, they're often in poor communities, in rural communities, in communities of color. So you can't disconnect uh, the fact that these these degradations both contribute to climate, but then also have a disproportionate impact, you know, on these these frontline communities. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do in Atlanta, which I'm excited about, is one dispel on a very regional basis, you know, this this disconnect. The second thing, of course, is is we're trying to model what it looks like to center at our understanding of the climate crisis, the impact on these frontline communities. Climate change is such a broad issue. Of course, it's going to have global implications and affect us all, but it's not going to affect us all in the same way. You know, our understanding is that because of legacies uh, of deep-seated inequities, when you look at uh, economic exclusion that has happened in in, in these frontline communities, when you look at, uh, as we said, the placement of these environmental degradations that have happened and the effect on public health in these communities, when you look at, uh, you know, even issues, current issues like voter suppression and, and the removal of self-determination for these communities. These are deep-seated inequities for which climate change is simply a multiplier. So when you talk about the impact of climate change, it's going to just add the weight, the crushing weight, on the communities that are already facing poverty, on the communities that are already facing systemic racism, on the communities that are constantly you know, being, being removed from these seats of power. So we're looking to center that in our conversation in Atlanta. We're also looking to engage, you know, uh, a diverse leadership and look to the activation of a number of pipelines of leadership, pun intended, um, <laughs> for, for the climate movement. So we're working with, you know, a number of partners uh, across the region, working with the HBCU Climate Change Consortium, um, working with the Partnership for Southern Equity, uh, working with the New Poor People's Campaign, of course, and really trying to build uh, you know, this global uh, and diverse movement that's accountable and reflective of the urgency that we see right now. I can I can get on board with that kind of pipeline. That's, that's great. Uh, I'm glad. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> Do you see a lot of momentum building in North Carolina? I know, I don't know, from my observations, uh, there's a, it's much easier to, well, none of it is easy, but, uh, you know, getting Getting people out to um, to march and to be more vocal uh, is one thing. Getting decision makers in this state, in a state that has been uh, unconstitutionally gerrymandered for a long time, in a state that has a long, long history of disenfranchising many of the most impacted communities that you're talking about, uh, those those same leaders uh, are in many of the positions of power that have to pull the levers of mm-hmm. um, at least, you know, legal change in the state. Is there is there a way forward with them? What, mm-hmm. what is the way forward there? 
Yeah, there has to be. And the way forward that we believe in the engagement that, that we're developing right now is that there is always a role for a grassroots movement to hold our elected officials accountable. Republican or Democrat, there must always be uh, a collective voice of the people that is constantly encouraging whoever holds those seats of power, you know, to, to, to not only be accountable to, you know, uh, the constituencies that they represent, but to constantly aspire to, you know, the, 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 the our better angels, you know, as was said, to, to aspire to do what is right. That accountability, you know, has to exist in any, uh, if we have any chance of having a, a, a thriving and a vibrant democracy. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and with our movement, there's that understanding there. We're saying now that with the engagement um, and the focus of the Poor People's Campaign, for example, we're not just developing uh, a movement that simply limits itself to the direct action. We're not developing a movement that simply limits itself to the marches and the getting in the streets. You know, after the 40 days of organizing with the Poor People's Campaign, what was powerful about that engagement was that the testimonies of community members who were facing the ills of poverty, who were facing the ills of systemic racism, who were facing the ills of ecological devastation, those were compiled into a congressional testimony that was taken back to Washington, D.C. and laid at the feet of a number of senators to tell them these are the policies that real working people are facing. We have to talk about living wage. We have to talk about health care. We have to talk about climate change. And it always has to be a two-way existence. You can't have one without the other. You are uh, in a unique position in this state in that you have uh, a direct voice with a couple of those leaders. You were recently um, chosen to be a member of the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality uh, Secretary's Environmental Justice and Equity Advisory Board. That's a mouthful. It is quite a mouthful. <laughs> uh, the e- I just call it the EJ Advisory Board. Um, along with uh, you know colleague Jamie Cole uh, here at North Carolina Conservation Network and, uh, and a lot of other uh, great, great folks, Veronica Carter, Naima Muhammad, Jeff Anstead. I mean, there's just a whole mm-hmm. list of um, fantastic people mm-hmm. on that board. How's it going? Uh, well, I'll tell you. I mean, the work, one, the people are, are, are amazing that you just, just rattled off and so many others um, on the board. It's, it's great, you know, and it's an honor and a, really an unexpected honor to be placed in proximity um, you know, with leaders who have been leading this work in our state, you know, for, for decades before my time. So as a as a student of the work that many of them have led, you know, it, it, it's a delight and it's an honor to be able to sit at the feet, you know, of the elders. Um, in terms of the work, um, it's powerful work. Uh, I'm not going to say it's going well. And, and simply because I don't want to make light of the responsibility, you know, what it means to sit on that board. That board, our hope, and, and, and at our best, we're going to be a voice, you know, for the individuals, for the communities, um, you know, that are that are relying on us to be that voice. You know, we were, we were sent there to give voice to the issues that people are facing. We were sent, vo- sent there to give voice and to help push our state departments on how to be accountable to these communities. That's a very serious task. Um, it's one I don't take lightly. Uh, none of us take lightly, um, but one that I am honored, you know, to, to, to kind of have that responsibility to do. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for doing that and taking the time to, to serve on that board. I know uh, your voice is, is a valuable contribution to that effort. Uh, lastly, just to wrap up, I know 
you know, when we talk about climate change uh, and ecological devastation and a lot of the other ills that have been listed off in this conversation, I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are directly impacted by all these things, who are struggling, who are suffering, who are looking for a light and a hope. There are a lot of other people who might not be directly impacted, but are, uh, you know, interested in, in getting involved and who sometimes hear all of this and feel uh, the weight of inevitability um, in, you know, climate change devastation, or maybe it feels that way, hopelessness. Uh, what, like, mm-hmm. what's the hope? What's the light? Like, you know, talk to them now and give Absolutely. them some fight or some hope. What can people do uh, to, you know, to hold on to that strength and move forward? Absolutely. I mean, as a nation uh, and, and, and as a species, we have often faced overwhelming odds. You know, there are multiple times where uh, the possibility of progress seemed impossible right until the moment that things changed. Uh, you look at the movements of the past, the civil rights movement, the women's suffrage movement, uh, and you look at the movement now for, for, for you know, climate uh, advocacy. It seems like we are up against some very staunch odds, and we are. That doesn't mean things are impossible. And when you see the leadership uh, of, of, of young people, of policymakers, of, of, of movement leaders coming together, when you see them embracing a fusion engagement where they recognize that our issues are interlinked, where you can't talk about uh, climate change without talking about uh, voter suppression, where you can't talk about uh, voter suppression without talking about poverty, and not only recognizing the issues are interlinked, but committing to developing solutions and stand in solidarity with one another to build both the movement and solutions you know, that are reflective. When you see that, when you see uh, um, just a fun fact that the fastest growing job you know, across the nation right now is solar panel installation. And then the second fastest growing job is wind turbine technician. You know, when you see the advancing of these renewable technologies that make a a, a, a transition to a green economy possible, um, there's hope. There absolutely is hope. Um, This is, you know, a test of our time. But I have faith, you know, that we as a generation, we as a nation, we as a world will meet it. We'll leave it there. William III, thank you. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Mr. Barber for sitting down and talking to us. Uh, It is time for us to take a break. Coming up in the next segment, we are talking to North Carolina State Senator Vicki Sawyer. A reminder that you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Search for The Dirt and search for The Dirt FM on Twitter for more information. And you're tuned into The Dirt on 90.7 FM WNCU. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Dirt. On the phone right now, I am pleased to have North Carolina State Senator Vicki Sawyer, a lawmaker representing Iredell in Yadkin counties. She has been a vocal advocate of public health concerns, and she was drawn into the public spotlight at a recent meeting about coal ash. She is, among other things, also a neighbor of a coal ash storage site. Senator Sawyer, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I would like to know, first thing, you are newly elected, uh, but you are not brand new to the halls of the General Assembly. You were appointed back in August, so you had a little bit of a head start over uh, some of your peers in this new class. Um, I'm wondering what the how you're liking it. What, what is the, what's the biggest adjustment for you 
uh, so far? How are you liking Raleigh? Are you getting comfortable? Because you're going to spend a fair amount of time here over the next few months in this long session. And I know we don't have an Epic Chop House or any of the great <laughs> restaurants in uh, Mooresville and Iredell, but uh, what are you liking so far? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for um, mentioning my favorite, one of my favorite restaurants uh, in my hometown, Epic Chop House. They do a fantastic job and um, definitely have helped add some campaign calories to my waistline <laughs> over, the, <laughs> over the last year or so. Um, and and, and also, also, I just am very grateful for the opportunity to serve, and I love it. Um, every day I wake up and it's a new adventure, uh, which is very um, exciting for me, and I learn so much. It's an intellectually challenging as, and physically challenging, but it's something that um, I look forward to every day. So although I don't sleep as much as I used to, um, I am uh, foregoing that for uh, helping uh, my district and, and doing the best that we can for North Carolina. Well, and I'm sure that everybody uh, in your district appreciates that that sacrifice that you're making very much. I was moved. Uh, you You were... Back home uh, last week, uh, we were talking a little bit earlier on the show about the Department of Environmental Quality and the kind of events that they're holding related to uh, gaining public input on what to do with coal ash storage. And there was one in particular on Lake Norman that has stood out so far because of the both the crowd, uh, the number of people that, that attended, and because of the way that the people just kind of said, hey, this kind of science fair format's not working for us. We, you know, we want to be heard. Uh, we want to say our piece. You, you were there. You stood up to, to make some comments at this, uh, at this public meeting. And I guess, you know, I, I, I was moved by it. I'm interested in, in what motivated you to, to stand up and, and speak there. Well, um, I don't know more if it was motivation or a call or a cry from the crowd that um, made me stand up. Um, as you said, you know, these meetings have been, are being held all over North Carolina, and this one definitely was, by far from understanding, the most contentious and emotionally anxiety. Emotional anxiety was just ruling the crowd. Um, you're right. The DEQ had set up the science fair type atmosphere, um, which they told me later worked very well in some of their other meetings because they had not had very much um, participation. But in that setting with 400 plus people and folks were being turned away at the door, um, that was not the correct um, format to discuss the information that folks wanted. And you're right, they absolutely wanted to be heard. And that's truly why I came. John, uh, Representative John Fraley and I went because we have been working on a separate issue that's unrelated, but something that's definitely with, with health and concern in South Iredell. Um, in regards to an increased risk of thyroid cancer. Um, so we have been working very hard on that since past June, and so we wanted to make sure that we attended this meeting to hear the concerns of the community so we can make sure that we are accurately portraying their voice in the legislature. And, wow, do we know loud and clear <laughs> what the community wants, and they did an amazing job voicing that. But during their voicing of their opinion, they were there were cries for, where are my elected officials? Why are they not here? And they didn't know that we were there. We were just trying to be, you know, in the background. So um, I didn't choose to stand up, but I was chosen to stand up, and I'm very grateful that I did. Um, I think, Brian, you had mentioned, you know, earlier that I, too, live right near a Marshall Steam Station, which is a coal ash plant. And I've told the crowd, when I walk on my deck, 
in, at night, I can hear coal trains hitting and dropping coal. That's how close I am. Wow. I also have a 40,000 ton unlined coal ash still that was on a construction site that has been remained uncapped and was recently during Hurricane Florence was uncapped due to the you know movement of water and that's about 22,500 feet away from my drinking well wow. so we have Lake Norman my house and then 2,000 feet away um, you know 40,000 tons of coal ash so I not only just as an elected official um, you know, are hearing the concerns. I'm actually living those concerns, and um, I felt like I wanted to communicate to everyone that um, that I'm there with them, and I am, and I, I hear what they're saying, and and I'm going to work my hardest to get the correct answers. And you've, uh, I mean, you've made um, a focus on public health and uh, you know the environmental impacts on public health, a kind of big part of your message and in your platform. Uh, mm-hmm. Since you've since you've entered the halls of the General Assembly, and I, uh, for for people who don't know, there is as you mentioned a thyroid cancer cluster in Ardell. Uh, between 1995 and 2006, uh, the county reported I think sometimes double, sometimes even triple the state average of thyroid cancer cases. It's my understanding that you you even had uh, your your kids tested. Um, Correct. I'm wondering, you know, what you, you, you mentioned that you, you know, you, you've said you want to work with state agencies or I think you've been having meetings with folks at DEQ. Um, one, what are those, what are those meetings? How are those meetings going? Um, do you find them productive and what do you see as, um, opportunities to address these kinds of issues, you know, as you're looking forward to the long session? Yeah, no, that's that is a very great question, because I will say, coming from a small business background in the private sector world, wow, was it, it was it a wake up call when you were dealing with large government entities when it comes to getting answers and questions to your answers, or answers to your questions. Um, so at the very beginning of that, I would have answered that question completely different than I am going to now, because I was frustrated at the very beginning of this process. Um, in speaking with a friend named Susan Wind, whose daughter was diagnosed with and treated for thyroid cancer and, and kind of the genesis for um, all of this discussion, um, it was it's scary. And you want the EQ to give you answers right now, and you understand why they can't give them to you. So um, as I said in the meeting the other night, you know, I was asking hard questions and very frustrated with DEQ because I felt like I wasn't getting those answers. But now that we've been working with them, you know, through um, many, many months and, you know, weekly meetings, um, I see more of understanding why it's so difficult to get those answers. Um, Sometimes it's not really the conspiracy that you think it is. Sometimes it's just, like I said, plain bureaucracy um, and trying to move through that. So um, DEQ has been helping us get numbers and answers and testing um, but is it as fast as I would like? Absolutely not. Um, so um, I've had to adjust my expectations of um, of what you know how fast and quick government can provide you information. But I am um, DEQ has definitely helped us with testing our wells um, around uh, the coal ash field that's near my location. Uh, my neighbors, uh, my neighbors' wells. Um, they've been inspecting the sites, um, and since Representative Fraley and I've been working with them, we've had a uh, good response, um, and we're continuing to work with them on a daily basis. That's great, and I think I think you touch on um, a very universal 
feeling and experience. Um, you know, I've talked to people who are impacted by the Gen X uh, pollution in the Cape Fear River Basin and wells uh, that have been contaminated with perfluorinated compounds who it's the same thing. They're, you know, they're worried about their kids drinking this water. They want to get their well tested. They don't know, you know, and they don't, it's, it's hard to know how to get the answers. The answers don't come as fast as you want them. It feels very urgent. I will say that some of these folks have had luck talking to their county uh, health boards and things like that as well. So for people listening who have a you know very urgent or real concern about whether or not their water is safe, that's another uh, route that you might want to take. You are, you are a, a member and a trustee at Rocky Mount United Methodist. I'm a, a Methodist myself. Shout out to Duke <laughs> Memorial UMC here uh, a few blocks away from where we are. Um, I'd love to hear from you how your faith informs or inspires your approach to protecting families from, you know, potential public health threats like coal ash or other kinds of pollution. Does it, does it play a role in matters of, of health policy for you? Well, during this process, there's a lot of prayer, I'll say, that it is a bedrock. And, um, you know, in anything in my life, when I, when I wake up in the morning and I'm saying my, my prayers and my walk with, my walk with life, I, or God, I am very um, cognizant of what he teaches us and how we should be good stewards of our, you know, of not only our own family, but all of our families. Um, and faith is a very important role and part of my life, but this um, public health, uh, this public health situation that we have going on, um, it is, it almost transcends almost everything, you know, all, all political um, parties, all, you know, socioeconomics, you know, all faiths. Um, it is actually um, a theme that binds us all together, and that is our health and the health of our children. So um, my faith is very important in how I walk my life, but it also, this is a, this is a big concern for all of us involved. You have been appointed to the Agriculture, Environment, Natural Resources Committee. Yep. Uh, you are also on um, the uh, Health Committee. What do you, I'm particularly interested in, in the former, um, what issues do you expect the committee to, to be tackling during this upcoming session? Wow. I am going to say one thing, and I'll probably be proven wrong in two weeks, correct? Because <laughs> Everything is so fluid uh, in Raleigh. It's not, um, I think we all have our own game plans, but sticking to that plan is virtually impossible day-to-day, much less long-range planning. Um, I do know that healthcare is always going to be a topic of concern for all of us, um, and uh, rural healthcare, I know that's something that's going to uh, be on our plate. Um, I keep hearing about the expansion of Medicaid, um, that that may be something that will be um, brought up, and, um, and mental health and opioid abuse. Um, mental health is something that has touched my life and my family's life and something that's very important for me. Um, and so I'm looking forward to, to try to do some great work uh, in that area. That's fantastic. Yeah, it, it, you, you think you know what's going to happen one day, one week uh, around here, and then the next week is just, you know, there's a wrench in the work. So I know how yeah. that goes. Is there, is there much, uh, in your experience, much of an opportunity for newer legislators to, you know, to sponsor bills and, and kind of push forward any legislation? Yeah, you know, actually, I've, um, before I got to hear you, 
or sometimes folks will portray um, in both parties. Leadership has all the information, and they, you know, you're supposed to do what they say. And and finally, in fact, I find that absolutely opposite of that. Um, very welcoming uh, to us new members, um, reaching out and asking us what our opinions are and what our thoughts are, because really um, I think they understand that you know the voters put us here because of what we said and what we believe in on the campaign trail. And so um, listening and, and asking for our opinions on things are um, only beneficial, you know, for the group at a whole on both sides of the aisle. Um, but I've, I've actually been welcomed with open arms and um, have found it uh, – very the support to be very comforting and helping and um and yes uh we've a lot of us legislatures especially our new ones are already uh drafting bills and been in bill drafting and ready to uh put our ideas into action do you see many opportunities or or need to work across the aisle at all in this session oh well yes i mean um yes especially you know we want to work back to um this What's happening in my, you know, home district of Iredell County? Um, again, that's a bipartisan issue, and, and I will be working very heavily on both sides of the aisle um, in regards in regards to that. And I think um, I'm looking forward to that. I think with a great uh, conversation um, from different points of view, that's how you get the best legislation. So um, I, I see that as theme um, in the building, and and as we move forward in this long session, that we will be working across the aisle. All right. Well, we will leave it right there. Uh, Senator Sawyer, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us today very much. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Brian. Thank do you, you. Real quickly, do you, do you plan on mm-hmm. attending the uh, SESH, the uh, public information meeting in, in Belmont? Oh, um, that I have a scheduling conflict, but I'm trying to work out. So I, um, I do. I'm aware of it. I have it on the schedule, but I'm not sure if that I can make it or not. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us and yes, uh, good luck this session. Thank you so much, Brian. Okay, it went fast, but we are officially out of time on this, our first episode at WNCU 90.7 FM. A huge thank you to our production staff here uh, and to our guests and to all of our listeners. You can check out The Dirt again uh, the fourth Sunday of every month at 5 p.m. on WNCU 90.7 FM. You can also check us out on iTunes and SoundCloud and The Dirt FM on Twitter. So until next time, take care, y'all. Be good.